Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Magic and the Other Guy. And Kevin and I are sitting outside my home here on the banks of Lake Wiley in Charlotte, North Carolina on a cold but very pretty sunny day. It's a very beautiful day. Chilly, but but beautifully and sunny. Yeah, and quite quiet as well. Not an awful lot happening out on the lake today. As ever, I never know what we're going to be talking about. Uh, I don't know what, why this tradition ever started, but here we are at episode 20 and we're still doing it. So, Kevin, you do know what we're going to be talking about, so start us off. Well, this is something I think many, many people are starting to look forward to once again when, when we can get to a better position is trips, planning yeah. trips and trips that we've taken and reflecting upon them and such like that. Okay. Yes, uh, and I used to travel an awful lot, uh, especially with Formula One, but even when working in TV uh, with Speed Vision and later with Fox and then with NBC, uh, and for a while I was living on the other side of the Atlantic in France, restoring a home in France, as we've talked about before, I used to do an awful lot of flying, and it seemed very odd in a way to fly from France over to the United States to cover the French Grand Prix and then Sunday night after the race turn around and head back home to France. But that was, that was the quirky business of TV and motor racing combined. But despite all the years and the endless flights that I've taken, I've got to tell you, Kevin, I actually do not enjoy flying at all. You've had your fill. Yes, well, yes, absolutely, I've had my fill. And, and as a younger guy, um, it never really used to phase me. I mean, if my team manager at Benetton said, hey, Steve, you know, we need to do a test in Portugal, jump on the flight, we're off this afternoon, it would go without a second thought. Or the idea of traveling coach, economy, as we'd say in Europe, down to Australia, and it was a, over a 20-hour flight with several stops en route, um, we would all just do it without thinking about it, just part of the job. But as the years have gone on, uh, and I'm now 58, I have always suffered with a little bit of claustrophobia. It's not bad. I'm not afraid of flying. I'm not afraid of heights. But I don't enjoy being in confined spaces. I never have. And as the years go on, that slight fear, that slight claustrophobic feeling has, has only increased. Is that something you've ever suffered from or not at all? Not really. Uh, I think uh, it's funny. The only time I could relate to exactly that thing is we're setting up uh, in college, setting up this bed that was going to be and I had to crawl up way up under it to, to get a bolt in there and I was like I'm almost in a coffin in this thing <laughs> the yeah. way I am somebody's gonna have to pull me out by the legs but uh, I don't think I have a, a innate fear of, of that but uh, yeah that's been it's been with me for a long while and um, it, it only it only gets with again it's you know I'm, I'm not I'm not terribly affected by it but I just I don't enjoy it but uh, we often talk about movies and TV and there is a scene with Uma Thurman being buried alive in Kill, oh, Kill Bill, Bill 2, I think, isn't it? Right? Definitely, it's, definitely one or two. I one of the two, Kill absolutely. Bill 2. And whenever I, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of a fan of Tarantino's movies. So I, I like the way he puts his, I like the way Tarantino directs, and I love the dialogue. I'm not overly keen on the endless you know, blood splashes across the screen, but I do like the Tarantino dialogue. And um, whenever I watch Kill Bill 2, and I see. Uma Thurman being buried alive in that scene, it, it really does upset me. Yeah. Um, and at one time, I did look into taking different forms of transport other than flying across the Atlantic from France over to the States uh, before I moved over to the States full time. 
just to get away from flying. And I did take the Queen Mary II, which had fairly recently been commissioned by Cunard as, um, as a passenger liner. Um, and I wanted to try and take it as you know, a, f a form of passage rather than a pleasure cruise. I wanted to see if I could make it work um, just to get me away from, from the aircraft. But it was kind of an unusual trip. But the, the big problem in terms of it uh, of a, as a commute it was, it was a five-day trip. Well, you know, it doesn't really work. It's five days on a very nice ocean liner or just sticking with it for eight hours in a, in a 747 or, a, or a whatever it would be, an Airbus or something, you know, and I couldn't really make it work. But it was quite an odd trip, and I'm pleased I took that trip. But I have to say my overriding memory of those five days of crossing the Atlantic on the Queen Mary II was just how vast and how incredibly lonely it is out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It is just endless square miles of gray rolling ocean and oh, yeah. nothing else. Yeah, I've never done a trans, you know, trans oceans trip, yeah. but uh, yeah. Yes, and I can remember there was, one, there was one part of the crossing. I mean, we were pretty much as close to being in the middle as you can get, I guess. Uh, and the only other vessel we saw was like a cargo ship or an oil tanker or something. It was it was good distance away from our ship, but it kind of it was following on the same course as we were. I'm going to guess it was probably two, maybe three miles away from us. But for a couple of days, it kind of stuck with us all the way. And I thought, I wonder whether that's a deliberate. I didn't know, and I never asked anybody on board. But I wonder whether that was a deliberate act on behalf of both captains saying this is probably a good idea yeah. that, you know, let's just, yeah. why would we Strength not do this? Strength in numbers, this? if something were to happen yeah, to one, it certainly can't Yeah, we're you're there and yeah. vice versa, yeah. I'd like to know a little bit of a security blanket was on one side of the ship or the other. Yes, it, uh, it, was, it was an unusual trip. Uh, and we did cross over the exact point in the, uh, on the Atlantic or over the Atlantic where the um, Titanic sank. And for a couple of days we knew that was coming up, so it's marked on the map where we were okay. going, you know. Um, but... Yes, boy, oh boy, it is, I mean, it is a watery desert out there. There's just nothing there. What time of year did you cross? Um, it must have been about March or April, yes, and it wasn't, there was no sunny days, I remember that. It was overcast and gray all the way. Uh -huh. Yeah, but a memorable trip nonetheless. Well, yeah. talking of memorable trips then, have you, have you taken any one particular trip you think, oh, well, that was, well, that was a quirky experience? Uh, look, at, well, I want, one thing I will interject is we're talking about water. You may hear there's a couple of the geese out here flopping and flipping around. They're trying to think, oh, yes. right themselves after going down for a fish. So if you hear that, that's what they're doing out here. I don't know how successful they are in their venture. But, uh, it amazes me how they manage to keep swimming in these cold temperatures. They got a, they got a right. better level of body fat than I do, yeah. thankfully. But Yeah. Well, I've been, you know, uh, to your, I think I mentioned this in a, in a prior one maybe, that uh, I did go to Europe the one time. Yes. Uh, to Austria. Yes. So that was my uh, trip across the Atlantic anyway. Of course, that was, was in a flight. Um, but talking about, you know, traveling for business, we'll go back to that, is prior to traveling for business, I'd really only flown once before. I didn't fly until college. And what happened there was I was at my first year at, at Tennessee, and my, my parents still lived in Florida. So I was going to go back for spring break. So it took till you know my freshman, or actually the latter part of my freshman year in college before I ever flew on a plane, at all, mm. uh, except a one one small 
recreational trip up and up Cessna and back down. But uh, from that point, then I started working uh, for Goodies uh, Family Clothing, a uh, clothing retailer, and their offices were in Knoxville. And actually, I used to commute to Charlotte, well, not commute, but travel on business to Charlotte, where we are, of course, now. Right. And, I mean, if you go way back and connecting to who I know, it's probably a lot of the reason I ended up here. But it brought me over here about every two to three weeks on average uh, to do some business. And I still remember the very first time I came over, it's just these little planes because you're just going across the mountains, yes. essentially, to get here. And the first time I flew, it was a little 19-passenger plane I think I guess a prop jet of some sort and I remember we went through turbulence and the lady next to me clamped onto my hand <laughs> like an iron claw yes and here I am you know pretty young and it's just you know you just your, your your world is just like hey it is what it is and my time's up my time I and mean, I was like I was thinking it was like a roller coaster ride Woohoo! You know, up and down we <laughs> you were going. Loving it. I thought it was you know kind of wild and it's like hey this is different but boy she was white knuckled but uh, we, of course, landed fine and all that. But that really started my kind of regular commute, whereas your commute was quite longer. And, you know, from across the Atlantic, from yeah. one country to another, I was jumping across the mountains every uh, few weeks, which was actually kind of fun. Again, you're, you know, I was single and I could go on a, a moment's notice and stay as long as I needed to. And then, you know, whatever the schedule brought about, I was happy to do it. And the planes got a little, that was the only time as that 19 bastard, they got a little bit bigger. And gosh, there's just so many times that, you know, it'd be like on the fly, just, hey, we need you over there. All right, I'll just run home, throw stuff in a duffel bag, and I'll be at the airport within a couple of hours and be ready to go. Many times I'd be the last flight back uh, from Charlotte to Knoxville, and it may be myself and like two other passengers, you know. I'd never bothered you. So you've never been bothered by flying. I mean, that story that you just, you just shared with us there of uh, the, the passenger next to you clamping onto your arm because of the turbulence. See, I think we're all bothered by different things and it's possibly not something that's it's not a rational fear it could be a fear of anything whether it's flying or turbulence or small spaces or whether it's spiders or bees or whatever it is it's, there is something that bothers us all and but that's certainly it for me is and I tell you actually thinking about flying the one thing that does that gets to me more than anything now on aircraft it's that moment when the plane lands uh, and taxis to the gate, and everybody stands up to get out. Yeah. And you, th there's that realization, unless you're fortunate enough to be right at the front of the plane, there's that realization that you can't move. I'm trapped in this position. I can't yeah. go anywhere. That's, that's what does it for me. That's what I really don't like about it. It's that feeling of, I guess to an extent it's that feeling of being out of control, but it's not really desire for control. It's just a desire to have the freedom to get off when I want to get off. Yeah. Of course you can't, you know, you can't do that. Yeah, it even helps being in an aisle. At least you can, you know, you stand up and you start gathering your belongings. I always like trying, you know, I grab the bag for the person behind me and stuff like that. Cause, yes. You know, and again, you're not going to be getting out until the rest of the flow ahead of you goes. So you might but again, well just be yeah, patient. It, it, I mean, it's only something, I mean, it's definitely increased this uh, unwillingness to fly. It's definitely increased with age because again, when I was, you know, very fortunate to be traveling the world with Benetton and it was a life that I absolutely loved and adored. I be, could be sitting at the window seat on the back row of a 747 on the way to Australia, and it wouldn't bother me at all. Yeah. I, I had no, no problem with it. It's only in the last, I would say in the last 20 years, where it started to sort of creep up on me that I don't like, I don't like flying. But I have only taken uh, 
tiny plane like you describe, um, I did that once and I was flying, well actually twice because I had to come back, I was flying to uh, Bimini, and I think it's from Fort Lauderdale, um, and it was on one of my little Hemingway getaways, I'd been reading Islands in the Stream, and much of that book is set on the island of Bimini, and I know um, Hemingway had spent some time there, and I was uh, had some time to kill in between two races when I was staying out in the States. So I thought, oh, Bimini, let's go and explore. That'd be fun, uh, and it was. It was a great, it was a great fun experience. But the idea of being in that little plane just for it was thirty minutes tops probably before we landed in Bimini. It's yeah, it's not something I'd want to repeat really. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I just, you know, like I say, that early part of the career, I was doing that, those little short hops, you know, all the time. Yeah. I still remember one time too. We were, we were coming into Charlotte, and it was a fairly small plane. It was like it was bigger than that 19 passenger, but probably like the next size up. And as we're approaching, I just heard the landing gear just grind. It was like, and I was like, well, that can't be good. <laughs> but we landed just fine, and. You know, they, they were kind of slow at getting some stuff done, and, I, and as we got off, what had happened is on the underbelly, some of the hydraulic lines had, had ruptured and spewed hydraulic fluid all over the luggage. And no, also, it, it caused the grinding sound. Well, you know, They still worked and, and landed us fine. But, so they're handing us this coated luggage, and they're like, go see the people inside. So we go in there, is and that like, right? yeah, and so I had this bag, that a great, cool little duffel bag I'd had since high school. I really liked it, and I just started pulling out clothes that were just caked in this fluid. And yes. and at first they were like, going, well, we'll give you this bag as a replacement, some little cheap nylon thing. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> and I just started pulling out clothes and giving them prices, because I was like, twenty bucks, thirty bucks, twenty bucks, forty bucks, and they just wrote me a check, and. Uh, <laughs> what, li what little I could survive with, they gave me a trash bag. So I showed, showed up at the job, and I said, do you like my luggage? <laughs> Which was, you know, via Glad. Yeah, well, I've never heard of that before. Hydraulic lines splitting and spraying over. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know how that happened or how it looked yeah. under there, but uh, it just spewed fluid all over all our luggage. I haven't had an, an experience like that. I mean, certainly I've been on many flights where the luggage has never arrived. <laughs> you know, don't know where that luggage went, but it never, it never joined yeah, there's me. A, yeah, there's always that, those tales. I'm not sure if that ever happened to me. I do remember coming into the, talking about Australia, I remember we were coming in to land once. I think it was either Adelaide or Melbourne. And uh, I was on a flight. I think this was it, it was, it was a flight that was in Australia from an Australian destination to another Australian destination, so it wasn't an international flight. Uh, but I remember being on a flight in Australia and coming into land, and we got lower and lower and lower as we were approaching the runway. And um, yeah, we were we were very low to the ground when all of a sudden the the, the pilot just gave it full power, and. Uh, I remember it because it was one of those experiences I thought, wow, you never realize quite how much power an aircraft has got until the pilot really calls upon it. And we shot back up into the sky. And, you know, it was a very dramatic moment, roaring up into the sky again. And we banked steeply over to the right and corrected ourselves and went into a circular path around the airport. And then eventually the uh, pilot came on the radio on to the tiny and he said, oh, I'm very sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we had to uh, abort that landing because somebody was already using the runway. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> okay. You know, that, yeah. I had the same thing happen. <laughs> Did you? Yep. Coming, right. into, coming into Charlotte because I can tell you 
it, again, we didn't touch and then take off. It was, you know, getting close and then high acceleration yeah. back up. And what it was was it was the Charlotte Hornets basketball plane was on our was on our runway. No kidding. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, the team's plane. Yeah. So. But I, I was aware, I mean, the thrust from those engines when the pilot calls upon that power was really quite remarkable. I remember that to this day. We used to travel because, I mean, traveling with Formula One so often and because the races were so regular on the schedule, the, a lot of the uh, cabin crews would, would recognize us and we would recognize them. And particularly on the, uh, again, talking about um, Australia on the Qantas flights. And when we were coming back from Qantas, uh, from Australia on Qantas, quite often back then, I mean, it's not really the case now at all because all flights seem to be packed all the time. A lot of those long-haul Qantas flights were actually not that busy. And although we were, uh, uh, the vast majority of the team were traveling coach, class, economy class, uh, we would quite often have a row of seats all to ourselves in the, in the back there. And cabin crew were really, really very decent to us. And they would bring us blankets and pillows and, uh, and they'd say, just go to sleep, take the yeah, whole row. Lift, the, head, and, uh, lift yeah. the armrest up. And yeah, make, just, uh, yeah exactly bed, that. Yeah. We'd, have, we'd have a bed there. And it was terrific. They, they used to take great care of us. But, well, sadly, for many reasons, those wonderful days of when air travel was considered fun, I think, I think they've gone, haven't they? Well, and two, I, I did all this this jumping across the, the mountain uh, from Knoxville to Charlotte back pre-9-11, too. So it was, I mean, I could show up 10 minutes before the flight, walk right on. Yeah. You know, they weren't all the stringent, you know, things they have to have now. So it was a lot more leisurely just to get on and off the plane and, and be there. You know, I got in a And Knoxville's airport wasn't, wasn't very big. So it was always just a very, park the car, roll in, walk under the metal detector. If it didn't go off, things were good. And, you know, I walked on to my gate and got yes. on the plane. No, yes, that's exactly right. You know, I'd almost forgotten about that. But again, once again, another Australia, Australian story. Uh, yes, I remember those airports. I mean, the Australians very much like in the States treat domestic air travel almost like in England. It'd be like catching the train or catching the coach, catching the bus. And uh, yeah, you could walk into an airport and walk right up to the gate and no one would say anything to you. There was no real security check. And mm -hmm. uh, you could wait there with friends and relatives at the gate until oh, yeah, the yeah. flight was I taking off. I remember that off. as a kid, and, yeah. big time. You know, yeah. greeting family or sending them off. We'd, we'd go to the gate with them and you'd go to a big window and watch them watch the plane take off. Yeah. Of course, my, my great personal claim to fame with air travel formed the plot of uh, the chariot makers when I described taking, uh, being fortunate enough to be taking Concorde over the Atlantic mm -hmm. from, from New York over to uh, to Paris. Yeah, that's a great experience that not many oh. can, can say they've done. Yeah, and it was such a it's such a remarkable experience because how often does that happen, you know, and, and for, uh, for Air France to just upgrade me onto the Concorde flight because my flight the previous night was cancelled. Um, it was such a wonderful experience because not long after that, the, the service was taken off and Concorde's never flown again. Yeah. Uh, but I still have. You, I mean, I know you're a big collector of almost anything and everything. You love collecting things. And, and I still have the, um, the boarding pass from that flight. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Air France 001, I think was the flight number, and the, the menu on board and the wine list on board. And yeah. I was so... I was so taken with that trip i thought just wonderful experience everything about it uh that when i was thinking about writing part three of my f1 trilogy i was thinking that flight i must include that flight in some way because it was a great personal memory 
And so I worked it into the plot of the book to tell that story of, um, of Formula One technology. But um, yes, I'm glad it's happened. Uh, I'm glad I had the experience of it. But all in all, if I can not take a flight these days, I'm perfectly happy to do that. Well, back when, again, back you know, in the early part of my career when I was working at Goodies, we actually, the company had uh, three planes because most of our stores were kind of in smaller towns. So it was, they, they wouldn't, you know, be serviced by major airports anyway. So, and whatever reason, the company had three. So I still remember one time we had a, an emergency where we had, I worked in advertising, and we had to have some printing done, and the, the printing press that we were going to use, they had a fire at the building. And this was a very important job, so we, we sourced it out. We're going to have the Orlando Sentinel newspaper uh, prints. Okay. Uh, the presses down there were going to yeah. do it for us. And at that time, we were just happy to find anybody that could get it done. So... Instead of you know sending it to a normal spot, they needed uh, needed us in Orlando, and I remember he just came to me and I was involved with that process process of that that piece, and uh, he said, "Okay, we're flying down to Orlando. We're going to take the company Lear." I was like, "All right, sounds good to me." <laughs> so, and I'd never flown on anything like that. Right. And I remember that when we got to the airport, you know, it's it's very nice because it's your own private you know hangar and everything like that through the smaller aviation place. You just go in the lobby and. They take you out to the plane, and I do remember the pilot said, now what you want to do is you want to go in the back, and you want to sit facing forward. And uh, we said, okay, and we found out why, because when those leers take off, it's almost like a straight-up shot. Yes. Once, it, once it got off the tarmac, it just went straight up. Very steep vertical climb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so we, we flew that all the way to Orlando. And it's probably much, the, the, what made me think about that is that the Concorde is a much, the fuselage is much smaller. Yes. And same with the Lear. A Lear is a pretty... Diameter-wise, the fuselage is pretty small, so you yeah. have to kind of hunch over, you know, to go to your seat and sit down. And then, so that was the only time we flew that plane. But there's a couple other occasions where we had to fly with with the company plane, and we also had uh, something a King Air, which was a prop jet. Oh, okay. And all right, all right. but it was much more comfortable, but it was slower, so it took you longer. Yeah. But the comfort level on it was nicer because it had higher headroom and such like that. And we had, had a, the third, I think, was something called a Navajo. Again, aviation. Smaller aviation people know exactly what I'm talking about, and I never even saw that one, so I never flew on it. But uh, it was kind of nice to do the smaller planes. In fact, one time we had um, one of our um, vendors, you know, as a, as a kind of a thank you for our business for the year, he took uh, some of us on a golf trip uh, to Pinehurst oh, here in North Carolina, yeah, very nice from Knoxville, and they said we'll pick you up in, in our plane, and it was a prop jet of some sort, um, and. The uh, pilot, I believe he was from Finland, his name was Juha, and uh, we, uh, you know, we're flying and stuff. He's really, and it was just, you know, just him up front, and he would let us come up, you know, in the in the cockpit with him. Yeah. And at one point, I remember I could hear everybody in the back goes, "Is Kevin flying the plane?" Because <laughs> all of a sudden the tail is, you know, going all wonky and it's starting to shift left and right. Because I wouldn't use, but he let me know. We were very perfectly safe up in the air for yeah. me to take the controls. Oh, so Kevin team. was flying. Kevin flight. was flying. Yeah, yeah, right. But those those things are so sensitive. I mean, if you're used to them, it's great. Yeah. But I mean, just just the slightest movement of my foot sent it, you know, banking this way and whatever. But uh, so I can say I flew a plane for a few minutes anyway. Yeah, that's a but that was a great experience. But, you, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, in, in years gone by, uh, there'd be no problem. You could ask to go up to the flight deck, mm -hmm. and, and the pilots were very pleased to see you. Yeah, especially yeah. kids. You know, they yeah, let the kids come out yeah. and see the, you know, what the cockpit looks like. Get them, give them a pair of wings and such. Yeah. 
But now you reminded me, actually talking about Concord, when you say that the in, the interior was relatively cramped. Yes, it was relatively cramped. I do I do remember that now. And uh, the seating was all two by two, two aisle, then two. The, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, all very comfy, but not actually very big in there. And the, and the one thing that does stick in my memory is that the, uh, the windows or the portholes or whatever you describe them, you know, they were, they were a little bigger than a paperback book. I mean, they were relatively small things. Flying used to be used to be great fun, but I don't think it's great fun any longer, is it? Unfortunately. Now, what used to be a you know thing of grandeur, you know, especially in the early days, you know, mm. where people would, would dress to the nines and be, be like they were going on a major social event or something like that to, to fly. It was quite a it was a an age that we'll never see again. I do think. I mean, if if ever I won the lottery, I've always said I would open a cinema that would show old classic movies and, and, and folks would not be allowed to talk or have cell phones on in the cinema. But if I, run a, if I won a really big number on the lottery, what I would love to do would be to build a replica of a big airship like a Zeppelin and uh, have that wonderful comfort in an air balloon and cross the Atlantic slowly in an air balloon. I think that would be a fantastic way to travel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, talk about an era gone by. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Terrible, terrible tragedy what happened to the Hindenburg and all of that. Of course it is. And I just wish that that I mean, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen in the future, but if we could figure out a way to make air balloons profitable again. Uh, and, and have just wonderful, luxurious compartments within an airship and cruise across the Atlantic in an airship. I, I, yeah, I and you have that. to look at it as I'm not, I'm not in any hurry to get there because yeah. that's not what it's all about. It's all about the journey on a trip like it's that. All, absolutely. Yeah, it's a bit like taking the Orient Express train. You're not in a rush to get to Istanbul, but you just want to, the experience of the luxury travel by train. Yeah, yeah similar, like similar in a way, I think, to... Um, uh, different in the States, I think, but over in Europe, and most especially in, in England, we had such wonderful canal system for canal boats and barges to transport goods around, coal and whatever, and it wasn't a quick way of, uh, of transporting goods, uh, but I'm sure it was a relatively cheap way of transporting goods, and you know, the, the folks that, that looked after and run the barges, I mean, they, they would do so for a lifetime, when they would cruise up and down the length and breadth of England all time, you know, be on the road, on the road, or on the canal, permanently. Yeah, you know, sounds like a wonderful thing to do. In, and then I would say over the last thirty years, a lot of those old canal systems they became redundant when roads opened up and everything went into trucks, and you know, trucking became such a big business, and the canals fell into disrepair. But a lot of those old canal systems have been repaired and opened up by enthusiasts, and uh, uh, canal holidays, vacations are fairly popular, not just in England, but France as well, and Germany and all over, I guess, anywhere that had a big canal system. But uh, I think the idea of transporting freight by canal is another great idea. I think that's something we should look into. Yeah. Well, I think we've got to get used to this idea, not going off, well, we do go off tack all the time when we talk, but we've got to get off this idea of we need everything tomorrow. You know, I know that's, that's completely anti what Amazon is so keen to promote, but if we can work out a way that we don't need these goods tomorrow, but we can have them in a month from now, I think that would help us out enormously. We'll be able to just take time. We need to we need to spend more time, not just rushing all the while. Yeah, if there's certain things that have to be here tomorrow and need to be for certain reasons, that's yeah. great. But if you can get them to their, you know, this is section Z, and they don't have to be here. If they show up in a month, they show up in a month. Yeah. We're happy as long as we can track it. Heck, we're good. We know where they are at some point. Yes. Now, 
We started off this conversation by my describing a, a trip that I took on the Queen Mary tour over the Atlantic. And uh, another option that I considered but I didn't take up was traveling by cargo ship, by freight ship across the Atlantic, which I understand is quite a pleasant way of doing things and it takes much longer. So you could catch that uh, freight ship, for example, in, um, in Lisbon, in Portugal, or Barcelona in Spain, and you know the, the ship very slowly goes round the bottom of Europe and across the Atlantic and has only something like room for let's say 10 or 14 passengers basically you're you're bunking up with a crew oh. it's a very cost-effective way of travel but um, um, I think that'd be quite an experience to do that across the Atlantic I think I've never, I've never really thought about them doing it like that but yeah. I guess you know if they're going and can make a little extra off something like that and we're going why not yeah. take some uh, passengers well, along with why, us why not fill those spaces up yeah when you did the uh when you did your trip though which port did you leave from and which port did you arrive at southampton and uh, we ended up in um in new york uh and the, the boat uh, the ship docked at what is now used or was used for the formula e race okay on the opposite side of manhattan if you like oh, okay yeah um because I remember, curiously enough, um, a couple of years ago when we were in New York uh, with Fox calling the uh, Formula E race, the double header from New York, where all the Formula E crews and media were having lunch. I sat there having lunch with the guys and I'm looking around this big hall and I'm thinking, wait a moment, I know, I know, <laughs> I know this place, where do I know? It's like from something in a dream, you yeah. know, wait a moment, why do I know this place? And then it came back to me, it was the customs clearing hall. Okay. Uh, where where the boats used to dock. Now I don't think the uh, ocean liners they dock on, on I think on the other side of Manhattan, uh, away from that. But uh, yes, I do remember when uh, the Queen Mary two arrived into New York. It was timed deliberately, and it was kind of a fun thing to do. It's timed just as the sun was coming up. We're talking about it being a cloudy crossing, and it was actually for ninety nine percent of the trip. But the morning that we docked into New York. Uh, we arrived just at sunrise, so about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. And all the decks of the Queen Mary 2 were full of passengers wanting to see the arrival into New York. So it's kind of a very special moment, really. So I'm very pleased I took that trip. Oh, yeah. It was great fun. It's a glimpse back in time. Yeah, it was, yeah, it, it was a great fun experience. Um, but talking about trying to use the, um, use the Queen Mary 2 as a, as, a, as a commute, on that trip, were different forms of entertainment, movies and shows and uh, guest speakers. And um, it was all very entertaining. I do remember, I do remember talking with the uh, head of entertainment on the Queen Mary too about my desire to be able to use this as, as a commute. If I could, I was just getting into conversation one night at the bar. And um, uh, this chap said to me, well, you know, what do you do for a living, blah, blah, blah. So I described what I did, and when he said, well, we would always use, uh, you know, a guest speaker of, of your caliber on this ship to entertain the passengers. And I said, well, that'd be something to look into. Because, yeah, that, that might, might, might help me. To cut a long story short, they did get back in touch with me uh, about six months later, and they said, Steve, we'd like to offer you the job of, of a guest speaker uh, on one of our cruises going from San Francisco down to... Um, it was down to Australia eventually. It was San Francisco down to Australia, stopping en route to three places. And I said, 
sorry. I think you've got the wrong end of the stick here. I'm trying to get from Europe over to New York for work. I, you know, even if I went down to Australia, this wouldn't help me. Uh, so I couldn't take them up on that. Rather marvelous offer because they would. Yeah, in retirement, that'd have been a wonderful <laughs> offer. <laughs> no, they were offering me rather nice accommodation and uh, you know, on the travel on the boat down. But I said it's not really going to help me. I'm trying to get to New York for business, so I couldn't make that work, unfortunately. Well, we better wrap this conversation up, and with that soon gone, hasn't it? Yeah, I think we kind of covered, covered some uh, miles, both sea and land. <laughs> sea, and, <laughs> sea and air. Yeah, sea and land, yeah. Over the land, anyway. Yeah. Well, gentle listener, join <laughs> us again when uh, we will reconvene down on the lakes of uh, down on the banks of Lake Wiley and Charlotte. We'll have another conversation. We'll best say goodbye. Bye for now, Kevin. Let's do it again. All right, bye. <laughs>